Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome. Good afternoon. Good morning, wherever you may be. We're just so glad to have you here. Thank you much for joining us today. My name is Scott Egan. I'm president of RSVA, and we have some outstanding speakers for you this afternoon, this morning, wherever you may be. Eventually, you folks in the morning will catch up and be in the afternoon. We'll get there. We have an outstanding program for the next two days. We thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to hearing all the different presentations we have here in the next couple of days, and we're going to be going in a few different directions. And uh, there's a lot to absorb. So I think with that, we'll we'll get started. We'll just dive right in here. Our first presenter, how to present to legislators and others about the Randolph Shepherd program. So the first part is getting advocates involved in reaching legislators and others. That would be Wes Fisher from NAMA. Do we have someone from NAMA on? Yeah, you got Robert Jackson here from NAMA. Robert, I'm thank a- you. Yes, yeah. I, I believe we couldn't get Wes here. So, yes, Robert, thank you so very much for joining us today. And uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Thank you for coming. Yeah, well, I'm really happy to be here. My name is Robert Jackson. I'm the government affairs manager here at NAMA, working on both state and federal issues. And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking to you all. I've been a little bit about me. I've been with NAMA for over a year. I've been working in the public policy space for almost a decade now, in both the private and public sector. Uh, as most of you know, on the call, NAMA is the association representing the $31 billion U.S. convenience service industry. Our core members are, of course, owners and operators of vending machines, but also micromarkets, office coffee, team water, and pantry services. So just a quick agenda for my presentation today. I'm going to highlight some of the tools we use for getting advocates involved and then provide a brief update on NAMA's government affairs activities and how we utilize each of these tools. Uh, so, you know, our first tool is, of course, the most direct one is our fly-ins and our state council hill days. So this is a way to make your voice heard. You can uh, join your peers and colleagues and share your stories in capitals across the country. This is when you go to a state capitol house or you, you head up to Washington, D.C. and go Capitol Hill. And you get an opportunity to visit with members of Congress or members of a state legislature. And you get to address the issues that are important to the industry. So, you know, why should you attend these if you have the opportunity to? Well, you get the chance to make a difference, right? You get to help shape policies that affect your businesses. You get to develop relationships with influential lawmakers and their staff. Uh, You get to establish and strengthen relationships. But another important part of this is also the networking opportunities that provides for peers, for your peers in the industry. So, uh, you know, that's an important tool that we use to get advocates involved for sure, uh, are these fly-ins and these, uh, state capital days. And for those of you interested, uh, you know, to talk about this, uh, NAMA has its fly-in November 16th through the 17th. Gotta do a little plug there for that. Uh, another important tool that we use to get advocates involved is an action center. So NAMA's action center serves as our advocacy portal. Once logged in, advocates of the convenience service industry can return and send pre-written messages to their members of Congress, governors, state house legislators, and relevant regulators. Uh, what's so exciting about this portal from an advocacy 
uh, perspective is the portal is able to determine uh, who your legislator is just by knowing your zip code. So advocates don't need to know their district. They don't need to know their senator. They don't need to know their congressman. All they need to know is their address. And the portal will automatically connect them to the most relevant government official. In addition, our action center also keeps detailed information on which legislators we've contacted, how many times, and on what issues. So that helps us be prepared as we move forward in connecting with these legislators. Another important tool we have is the PAC. Uh, for some members of NAMA, their time is incredibly valuable, but they have disposable income and they would like to use it to help the convenience service industry. For advocates like, like this, we have the NAMA PAC. NAMA strives to be the most effective advocate for the convenience service industry in Washington. And uh, you can help strengthen our efforts through supporting NAMA PAC. NAMA PAC relies 100% on the generous voluntary contribution of NAMA members, supporters, and partners. And while membership dues are used for legislative advocacy, voluntary contributions to the NAMA PAC directly support the federal candidates and political programs at that level. We also have, and this is, I think, uh, the most important way to get people involved, is our weekly newsletter. So this newsletter contains important news and updates to make our members aware of our government affairs progress and significant information. It's a time-efficient way to boost advocacy efforts. It comes out at 11 o'clock every Sunday, just in time for that second cup of coffee, and it highlights what advocacy work we're doing. Uh, and it also highlights some of these tools so that people can engage when they can or engage on the issues that are important to them. Uh, so kind of moving forward, I'm going to talk a little bit now about what NAMA's engaged in on behalf of the convenience service industry, what we're working on, and the way that we utilize some of our tools here to get advocates involved. So uh, first and foremost, we have the uh, bipartisan infrastructure agreement that passed the Senate as uh, some of you know, NAMA has been working towards what's called the Drive Safe Pilot Program. This is a NAMA-backed piece of legislation that helps alleviate the stresses caused by the ongoing driver shortage, especially in the supply chain. Uh, so this entices young drivers to join the industry, trains young drivers above current standards, requires state-of-the-art safety technology in all train vehicles, et cetera. So that was included, and that's the good news about this infrastructure package, and we've been utilizing uh, our action center to help drive uh, not only advocacy efforts, but education on ongoing uh, supply chain shortages. The bad news about this piece of legislation was that it included a reduction in the employment retention tax credit, uh, ending it three months early, making wages paid after September 30th of this year ineligible for the credit which is a little bit confusing because the legislation hasn't passed the House yet, so it's not in effect. So the credit is still available to members and still available to uh, citizens at large. So what NAMA is doing is we're actively advocating that Congress uh, solidifies access to this third quarter. Our industries have been tremendously impacted by COVID-19 and continue to struggle as the nation deals with the Delta variant. When the American Rescue Plan of 2021 was passed, it was extended the credit to December 31st, 2021. Now they're going to try and end it early. Uh, and of course, the need for cash is readily apparent in most industries that have small businesses. In fact, according to a recent Goldman Sachs survey, 
with more than 1,000 small businesses, 44% of U.S. small businesses have less than three months of cash reserves, leaving them incredibly vulnerable. We are urging Congress, and you can help us urge Congress, to uh, ensure that the final quarter of the ERTC is made available through the end of 2021. And we're having some success thanks to uh, advocates on the ground who are using our grassroots advocacy portal. Uh, and, you know, so the success started with the fact that we were able to build and found a coalition of 20 small business organizations. And we're actively urging Congress to include that last quarter of the ERTC into their budget reconciliation process. In addition, at the request of the coalition, almost 20 members of the United States House of Representatives signed a letter this Friday or last Friday, excuse me, urging leadership to secure the employee retention tax credit in the fourth quarter. Of course, uh, NAMA and its advocates really appreciate the elevation of this serious impact caused by eliminating access to the ERTC. If Congress fails to act, there could be devastating con- consequences, and we estimate a $196 million impact for the convenience service industry alone. So we commend these congressional leaders pushing to shore up the fourth part of the RTC, and we'll continue to do that. And uh, if any of you want to become a part of our advocacy team, please visit our action center at NAMA's website and help us uh, help us get this issue off the ground. Another issue where we lean heavily on our advocates is the restaurant revitalization fund. Uh, so this is a piece of legislation and a program that provided $28.5 billion in relief for small restaurants. Unfortunately, uh, many of folks in the convenience service industry were excluded from this piece of legislation as signed into law. And that was because the legislation didn't clearly state the convenience service industry. Uh, and that allowed the Small Business Administration to interpret the legislation should include us. And again, here, too, we lean on our advocates. We uh, send our newsletter updates and we ask them to go through our action center, not only inform the Small Business Administration that we've been excluded, but also remind their senators and congressmen of the importance of our industry and uh, how we've been excluded. Another issue we're working on is the uh, perishable food and unmerchantable products. So we've had some recent success. Uh, Senator Cortez Masto introduced the Hospitality and Commerce Job Recovery Act of 2021. This legislation uh, provides a temporary credit for any spoiled or unmerchantable inventory between March 13, 2020 and September 30th, 2020 at 90% of the qualified unmerchantable food and beverage costs. This tax credit would apply to any taxpayer engaged in the active trade of or sale of food and beverage as a manufacturer, importer, wholesale distributor, or retailer during the covered period of time, or otherwise known as the height of the pandemic. Another issue that we are really focused on and uh, something that we're definitely going to utilize our advocates for as we move forward into our fly-in in the fall is uh, the Coin Metal Modification Authorization and Cost Savings Act. This legislation authorizes the U.S. Mint to modify the metallic composition of circulating coins if the modification could reduce costs incurred by taxpayers. However, we worked with the bill sponsor to ensure that any change in metallic content will be seamless. 
and any transition of coin will not affect coin reading technology currently being used in the marketplace. Passed by the House last December, this bill died on the vine, and we're now asking our advocates again to help us uh, get this over the finish line moving forward. Another thing that I would just like to highlight for everyone on the call is the uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan. Uh, the Small Business Administration has made adjustments to this Economic Injury Disaster Loan, thanks in part to uh, a couple of notes and storytelling that's been done by our members to the Small Business Administration. And so they made a couple of changes. And so uh, it should be known that, you know, if you are uh, – you can provide for up to $2 million in disaster assistance to your business. The $2 million cap, that's, uh, that's grown. And then there are no more or there's no longer any upfront fees or early payment penalties charged by the SBA. Now, another thing that's uh, worth mentioning for anyone on the call who's been affected by another economic disaster, uh, you can apply for both COVID and also for the other disasters. So I know some people on the line might have been affected by Hurricane Ida and applied for these kind of loans. You can still apply for COVID economic injury disaster loan or vice versa. If you've already applied for COVID, it's okay. You can still apply if you've been affected by Hurricane Ida. And then uh, just to talk about some state level success that we've had utilizing our advocates, uh, you know, so some state level success and how we've gotten advocates involved at the state level is uh, we have been working with uh, groups and individuals on the micromarket issue. So uh, we've had micromarket legislation passed that uh, simply clarifies uh, to convenience service operators uh, how micromarkets are to be regulated. And so, you know, there we lean on our state councils, but also individual operators in the states to tell their stories and we engage them not just through the, uh, the state council's websites, not just through press releases. We also use our action center there too, as well. And we also stay in touch with our newsletter, letting people know about bills moving through their states and how they can get involved, either support or oppose them. Uh, you know, so we've also used a lot of advocates to help with the HFC phase outs, right? So NAMA supports a ubiquitous delay in the mandate phase out of Hydrofluorocarbons, I hope I said that right. It's always a mouthful. Also known as HFCs, refrigerants used in vending machines until 2022. We believe this is going to allow for sufficient time. And we've had feedback from our advocates and members that this is going to lead to sufficient time for NAMA to resolve the outdated placement restrictions and provide the industry ample time to make a complete and successful transition away from HFC refrigerants. Uh, you know, another issue that was brought to our attention by our advocates and something that we've had a lot of a lot of folks engage with is uh, PPP loan taxation and deductibility. And so a lot of states uh, were simply uh, blind to PPP taxation. And so while the federal government intended that PPP loans were to be non-taxable, other states had to update their codes to make sure that that was going to happen. And so there too, you know, we let people know what the issue was and how it was simply just an educational problem. And once the states became aware of this, they fixed it pretty rapidly. And, you know, I think that was a good thing and very helpful that our advocates hopped on there 
and used not only our action center, but also brought our attention to the issue uh, in the first place. And then, of course, we have the COVID-19 essential industry designation. This was from back at the height of the pandemic. NAMA was able to ensure that the community service industry was deemed essential at the federal and state levels, proactively created opening guidelines for governors, lobbied to change reopening guidelines in certain states, uh, opened rapid response portal to answer questions on COVID relief and response, and ensured industry priority during vaccine deployment. Uh, that would have been phase 1B, which feels like a, a long time ago, but in most states. So here are some uh, trending issues in the states that are coming up that we're keeping an eye on and that we're going to be sure to lean on our advocates for their help. And so first and foremost, you know, we got single-use plastic bans, banning of cashless retail, sugar-sweet warning labels, sugar-sweet beverage tax expansion, streamline of local micro-marketing licensing, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the HFC refrigerant phase outs, minimum wage uh, increases and decreases across the country. Keep an eye on. And of course, we're going to keep interfacing with all 50 governors to educate them on the importance of keeping the industry open as waves of COVID and Delta variant, uh, you know, ebbs and flows of the uh, pandemic and the cycle continue. Uh, one thing that we were tremendously worried about and a lot of people reached out to us about was uh, revenue concerns with individual states. In particular, the concern was with the economic impact of COVID, states were not going to be able to uh, gen generate enough revenue. Uh, that turned out not to be true, thankfully, and the states were all in pretty good shape. And so they didn't put on any more taxes on operators, which was a really good thing. Uh and this last year, we got pretty lucky because COVID relief and social issue, social justice issues dominated the legislature, uh, from in all 50 states. And so the attention was turned away from commerce and regulation. It was more on just these two issues. And so, you know, this coming year, we think there's a lot of pent up demand for some of the issues that affect our industry deeply. And so we're going to continue to work. And continue to lean on you and continue to lean on uh, other folks in the industry and other advocates to make sure we get this done. Uh, so I touched on it a little bit throughout my conversation here, but another, you know, big thing in getting advocates involved is to ask them uh, what are they interested in and to listen. One of the best tools we use, especially when working on state issues, is listening to our members. NAMA tries its best to be everywhere at once, but we simply can't. And there's, you know, thousands of municipalities across the country, and they have their own rules and regulations. And it's always great when often an NAMA advocate can bring an issue to our attention, and we're grateful for it. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I want to provide you all with my contact information. It's rjackson at NAMA now. That's N-A-M-A. NOW.org. And my phone number is 702 533 4804. That's 702 533 4804. And I want to just provide you with that information so that way, if you ever come across an issue in the industry, you'd be sure to give me a call or shoot me an email and I'll be happy to take a look at it and work on it with you. Uh, 
So I know it looks like we have a minute or two here. I'm not sure if there's a way to do this to our ACB tech or not, but I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. Yeah, that that would be great. And anybody have any questions, that's great. But Robert, I wanted to address a couple of things with you real quick. Um, yeah. I, I have had the opportunity to go on one of your uh, March on the Hill events. Um, yeah. A few years ago. It's a good experience. I encourage all our blind operators that are listening today, please take that opportunity in your lifetime to, to, to join NAMA, to go up on the hill, tell your story. That is so important. And you're going to hear that from me again and again. I can tell your story. I can't tell it nearly as well as you can tell your story. So um, please do take that opportunity when it comes along. So I, I wanted to share that, Robert. And if there's any questions, uh, folks could raise their hand. You have no hands raised. All right. Well, thank you all for your time today. I really appreciate it. And everyone's got my contact info, and I appreciate the opportunity to address you all. And uh, feel free to follow up if you have anything you need. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for joining us today. It was uh, very, very informative. All right. We might as well start on our next uh, section of this discussion, part two, telling your story. We have Donna Sigler, who I know is with us, and Jeff Tom. I'm just going to turn the floor over to you folks, and you can share your stories and and, uh, help encourage people to create their own stories, advocating for themselves in RSVA or themselves in the BEP program. So. Donna, go ahead. Hello, everyone. I I have been a member of RSVA since the early 90s. I began working in the BEP program in uh, late 1980s as a temporary employee and just kept on until 2003. When I retired from the Iowa Department for the Blind and Cafeteria, over the years I have had the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C., The American Council of the Blind has held uh, legislative seminars for a number of years along with the ACB Board of Directors quarterly board meeting and president's meeting. The board usually meets on Friday all day. On Saturday, the state and special interest affiliate presidents gather to discuss a number of topics. Sunday and Monday are devoted to getting up to speed on legislation pertaining to the blind and visually impaired Americans. The issues are discussed and ACB personnel answer questions pertaining to the legislation pertinent to the blindness community. On Tuesday, most of the group travels via taxi or subway to the Capitol in Washington, D.C. The Capitol complex is very large. So walking shoes are a must. There are three office buildings for the members of the House of Representatives, the Longworth, Russell, and Wallace buildings are on one side of the Capitol building, and the two Senate buildings are on the other. They are the Hart and the Dirksen buildings. There is a railway for both the Senate side and the House side. This is provided for members to get to their guests in the council within 10 minutes a vote is called. As I want to make 
appointments to visit House members, the two senators. Uh, these fans with no guarantee of a visit once in D.C. There generally were five islands in the group. Before entering an office, we delegated one in the group to introduce the group and explain why we happened to be there. Another person would explain our interest in specific legislation currently on the books and what we would like to see Congress take up on uh, the floor. It is wise to conclude the interview in about 15 minutes. The last item is to give the member or assistant a documents we had discussed. By keeping the meeting short, we don't overstay our welcome and we need to keep moving as it takes some time to get from one building to another, especially since there are hundreds of people in the halls and elevators on any given day. ACB provides a room so people can leave coats and luggage while they are visiting their congressmen and women. There may be some downtime between appointments, which is a good time to grab a cup of coffee or even lunch at one of the um, assortment of cafeterias in the complex. Over the years, I have enjoyed my visits with the senators and representatives it is an honor to be at the uh, epicenter of our government, and I am ready to go back again. Thank you for your time and attention. I would be glad to answer any questions at this time. Great. Uh, thank you for that uh, great uh, description, Donna. I, I've forgotten about um, some of the intricate goings-on when you are at the Capitol Complex Um it is a large facility. There's a number of people coming and going. And certainly to visit with your representatives, um, it may be the representative, it may be one of their staff. They have a lot of people they're trying to get in there to see during that course of that day. So you're not going to have long to visit with those folks, but you will make an impact. I, I, I can tell you from my experiences in going to D.C., uh, we, we do make an impact. Again, reminding everyone, your story is such an interesting story. They want to hear that. They want to hear that, and they'll definitely take notice of the fact that you made the effort to get there and tell your story. So maybe this is a good time to take some questions and answers. Artists, do you have anything you can share with us? I've been to Capitol Hill 31 times. Wow. <laughs> Um, for uh, to do national advocacy, but I've also gone to the state capitol both when I lived in Iowa and also now that I live in California. And one of the things that I always share with people is it's really important to share your story. I mean, you can go there and spout the bills that you are for or against and give them all the details and so forth. But they really want to hear your personal story. So if you're up there and say the commercialization comes up again um, for RS vendors and that they want to allow that in roadside rest areas, 
Well, then it's better if you express that I'm a vendor and this would impact me because you can either say that you're on a roadside rest area if you are, or if you're just a vendor in the state, you could say it would have an impact on your program because uh, vendors would not be able to make as much income, et cetera. And so it's really important to make sure that they are aware of how it would affect you personally. And if there's other blindness-related issues, I know there have been bills on, you know, technology getting um, tax credits on technology, of course, which would affect people with visual impairment. And there's always a bill that will affect you as a visually impaired person. And if you express how you use specialized equipment like magnification or if you use a screen reader, et cetera, and you're talking about uh, like web access or whatever, they can understand why it's an issue for you if you talk about yourself personally. Of course, it's good to know the facts about any bill that comes up, too, because they're going to be listening for that. Um, there is an, um, an advocacy handout in with the materials that I sent out an email, and it gives some general advocacy tips about how important it is to get to know your personal legislators in your district and, of course, some of the common courtesies about making appointments and writing letters, et cetera, which are all important as well, because not everyone can afford to go to the Capitol, obviously, and visit the legislators in person. And it's just as important to contact them by phone, contact them in email, and uh, write letters. Obviously, letters aren't as good as they used to be, because after they had the big scare, um, they uh, it takes time for them to get letters. So actually, email and phone are best. Or you can fo- fill out a form on their website, too. And I'm not sure exactly what people would like to learn, but I just really think it's important to practice your story and know a good story about you or about somebody else. If you're advocating uh, for another vendor and you're not a vendor, then, you know, telling somebody else's story also is a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, I can't say it enough times that it's so important for you folks as blind operators to make that venture to your state capital. Get to know your legislators. Uh, get to know your federal folks. Um, it, it does pay dividends. I, I can tell you a short story that uh, the year... It might have been one of the years that I went when artists went. Um, I ended up going a couple times, uh, pretty much back to back. I went for one, and then I went on the NAMA one. And uh, the second time I walked into the offices of one of the senators, the person that came out to speak with us recognized me right away. And he's like, oh, you're back. And, boy, the note was and he was really paying attention to what I said to him. And it, it made a large yes. difference. I, I just can't encourage you enough to make sure you make those make those connections. I know we just had NAMA on, and one thing I forgot to mention to him was that um, I'm also involved in the state chapter of NAMA, and um, I have done the state tour to the Capitol, and uh, it, 
it's important. It's very important for those folks to see us as well because uh, they can be some decision makers as well. And in fact, the last time I went, we did meet with a legislator that was from at home, from where I grew up. And I knew he was visually impaired. Uh, we had kind of traveled some of the same circles, but we had never had the chance to meet each other. And we did. And I think that I made an impact on him and he made an impact on me. And that's going to pay dividends down the road. So um, does anybody have stories they'd like to share? Natasha? Thank you. Hello again. Um, so uh, I realize I don't have a story, but I am interested in going and getting to know our legislators and definitely finding out if they have any plans with now these new changes happening with the rest areas, if there is any type of plan or thinking um, to ensure that the blind still can run their businesses. Um, so I guess my question is <laughs> really, can we go there and ask questions versus explaining uh, a point or a story on our behalf? Artists, maybe I could get you to take a shot at that. I know for myself, I would say um, it, 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 it's okay to ask those questions. It's also okay to let them know your point of view. Of um, but again, the most important thing for you will be your story, where you are at in your walk in life. Uh, the fact that if you are a, a, an operator, a vendor, I never quite know what to call us in our program, that how that would affect you personally, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, with, with, with the loss of the income, if things ever would happen on those rest areas, how it would be a detriment to you, what you would lose. And um, that, that's going to be the most important message that you can give them to take away more than anything is that this would affect you personally. And this is how it would affect you personally. That is the, the key. And it's never hurts to ask them questions um, if you're not sure where the bill is going. And it's not uh, a problem if you give a suggestion of how um, making a change in the bill uh, might make a difference to you. And if they ask you questions, don't try to ad lib and give an answer when you don't really know the answer. Uh, tell them, hey, I will find out the answer and get back to you. And then make sure you do get back to them and give them the um, answer to the questions they're asking. Because that would be, you know, the way to handle it. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you for your question. Anybody else wondering anything? Because uh, uh, certainly we, we don't have all the experience in the world, but we have done this a few times. And um, it was quite clear to me. Uh, this is an important issue, and uh, we want to help you uh, overcome any fears you may have about doing this because uh, you're a human being just like we are, and your your voice matters just as much as mine or anyone else's. So um, it, it's, a, it's an important task to perform. It really is. It's, it, it's important for not only yourself but for all of us. Jeff, are you with us? I am. I am. Oh, wonderful, Jeff. Good. Good to hear from you. We've just kind of been generally discussing uh, the importance of uh, advocating for yourself. Uh, My message a number of times here has been talking about yourself. When you get that chance to go in front of your legislators or their assistants, um, 
The main thing they want to hear is your story. And we did have a question from an audience member asking if it's okay to ask questions. And we certainly said it is okay to ask questions. But the most important thing that they're going to want to hear from you is, uh, in this case, it was wondering about the rest areas. And I said, what they're looking for is how is that going to affect you if there's a change how will it affect you in your life? That's that's the most important message that uh, someone can leave with their their congressman, their senator, or their aides. Um, is there anything you can add to any of that? So just a couple of tips. First, wh- whoever, wh- whatever you want to achieve, make sure that you know what it is and who it is you have to go to to get the result you want. For example... If there is a state law and you happen not to know about it and that state law specifically says, you know, you can have commissions on, you know, a university or whatever it might say, um, then if you file a simple arbitration against your SLA, you're going the wrong route because you're going to have to, the state law's got to be changed. Um, so you need to know what it is that is precluding you from getting what you want. Um, Second thing, when you tell your story or when they ask you questions or whatever, don't try to fake it. That's the worst thing you can do because immediately you lose your credibility with whoever you're talking to um, and it will rebound against you. Um, Another thing I'd say is, and I've had examples of this, um, sometimes we have a lot of anti-government bias and we have people who feel that, you know, government doesn't treat people well, it doesn't act responsibly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that may or may not be true, but when you're advocating with government, do not treat staff or your representatives, any officials, with that kind of viewpoint because you you know they are public servants and they are there to serve you but on the other hand they are working and doing a job just like you are and you need to treat them with the same respect that you would expect them to give you and that's really important um you know because the more you show them respect the more they're going to do or should do um likewise so those are just a few of the tips that that I I would have and the other thing is if you think that you are going to have opposition from wherever know your opposition know why they're going to oppose you and try to anticipate the arguments that they're going to make because the more you you know sort of shrug off the opposition and 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 don't really care about understanding it and just say ah they're just you know trying to you know do me wrong and they it doesn't matter the less you have a chance of winning because if you know your opposition then you have a better chance of knowing how to defeat them so i guess those are just a few of the the oh, and the final thing i would say is be as prepared you know it's the whole you know Tom Brady or whoever else, whatever other analogy you're going to go with, or, you know, LeBron James or anybody, be as prepared as possible. 
um, when you're telling your story or, you know, whatever you're doing in, in your advocacy journey, just try and be prepared because that will help you. I, yes. Uh, Jeff, I, you know, I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it, but probably not a great way to go into one of those meetings is to come in and say, yeah, I see you're on the opposite side of things with that whole crazy bunch over there. And that's not how you get things done. That's probably not the best approach. Um, like you said, respect goes a long ways. And if you come into this and you're just anxious to tell them your story, and talk about how these changes may affect you, that's going to be the biggest thing. Uh, you just don't want to go in the weeds. You want to stay away from that area, tell them about you, and that's that's really what they're looking for. And, again, treat them with respect, absolutely. Artist, did you have anything you'd like to add as we close out here? I think the most important thing to remember is that your voice does count. And don't think that you're the little voice and it's not a big deal for you to participate because truly they get very few people that actually call them and actually email them about any particular issue. So it is really valuable to contact them whenever you have a concern or a question because they do value hearing from constituents. This is Donna. Go ahead, Donna. I just want to add here that I agree uh, with you and artists and, and we need to tell our stories. We need to, to let them know that we're back here in our States uh, counting on them to do the right thing for our uh, purposes. And especially the roadside bending, we, we need to protect that and, I, I think that, you know, for the most part, we're doing our best to do that. So I, and I'd like to thank the other speakers today. I, I think that uh, this has been a very educational session. Thank you. Well, thank you, Donna. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but is there a uh, time that you can remember going into uh, your legislative folks and you felt like you had an impact? Is, is there a time you can remember that you did that? Or do you feel they all were impactful? I think for the most part, they all were. Uh, we had one, uh, representative. He, he is no longer there. Um, he was really not interested in what we had to say. And I think that that counts for the fact that he's no longer in Washington. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it very well could. Another thing too is, that if you bring devices with you, like I've brought in my real sense in, and they saw me actually looking at notes that um, when I was talking to them, you know, that makes an impression. And if you have a video magnifier and you come in and you show them how you do the things you do, because a lot of these people have no idea how a blind person can, can even run a business and run a facility. So if you can show some of the tools that you use or tell about, you know, how you use a speech system on your computer or how you use magnification, that's really important for them to know because they have no idea. They probably have never met a blind person. Or if they have, it's probably been someone elderly 
that has not been in the workforce. So it's it's really key to them to see that you are active in your community and that you do know what you're talking about and that you are there to really advocate for yourself and other blind people. Another thing that you can do is invite them to your location. If you're um, seeing a local legislator, just say, hey, my business is such and such and such, and this is where I'm at, and I welcome you to meet me at my business so you can see what we're all about. Because some legislatures are truly interested and would be interested in coming. Another thing you can do is if you have a local association, invite the legislator to come and speak to your group. There are lots of times when you're looking for a speaker, don't forget about legislators. And even if you don't want them to speak the whole time, invite them to come and participate and just to be at your meeting, just to see other blind people together. And it will be a unique experience, and I think they'll welcome it. Every time that uh, we've had a legislator come to an event, they've always been really impressed with the professional activities of the organization So I think, you know, a lot of times we don't take all of those things into consideration when we're um, talking to legislators that they really are interested in us personally as well as, you know, in our business. Before high tech, uh, we had low tech, which was Braille watches. And we had a guy in our group, artist, you remember John Taylor. Um, He would make a point of checking his Braille watch just to get uh, a word out of out of our senators or representatives, you know. Oh, you have a watch that you can read, you know. So even low tech uh, helps. Yeah, that that that's amazing, Donna. I hadn't even thought about that. And uh, uh, as as we close here, I'm going to share a kind of a funny off little story. Um, so here in Minnesota, one of our Senators is Tina Smith. And Tina Smith used to be our lieutenant governor uh, when we had uh, Governor Dayton. I met her uh, for the first time in the prison <laughs> of all places. She was coming through with a tour. So uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, you think, well, work, you may meet one of these folks. Well, that was not the place I was prepared to meet somebody important, but uh, look where that's gone over the years. Now she's a senator, so you just never know. Um, so it, 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 it can be life can be interesting. But uh, yes, I, I just want to thank all you folks on, that have shared here today, and um, for you folks thinking about uh, taking advantage of doing this, don't be don't be shy, don't be scared. Um, we certainly are here to to help walk you through some of this. I, I certainly. And myself, if you're getting ready to do this and you need a little boost, give me a call. Give me an email. Uh, I'll, I'll encourage you to do it because uh, it, it's just such an important thing that we do. It's above and beyond where we live in our own personal little lives, and it's so important. So uh, with that, if anybody else has anything to share, great. Otherwise, I think we'll close it out for this session. Does anybody have anything real quick to share, or otherwise we'll close it out? You want door prizes. Door prizes. Fantastic. Let's jump into some door prizes, artists. Yay. 
Okay, I've got two um, names here that were randomly drawn, and you'll be sent a gift certificate in email, so you can look from, for that. First one is Kevin Slayton. All right, Kevin. And the second one is Joshua Gabehart. All right, Joshua. Wonderful. Well, congratulations, you folks. Fantastic. So I, I think we're ready for a uh, commercial uh, here, if I'm not mistaken. A little break here. So uh, we'll, we'll let that uh, play on, and we'll be back shortly. Good afternoon. My name is Terry Starnes Bryant. I am with Microtronic Cashless Solutions. We're here for our presentation for our virtual trade show. The way our system works is it is completely cashless except for the loading station. Whenever someone comes in to a facility, the first thing they would do is go and purchase a card from the card dispenser. The card can be any price. This one just happens to be priced at $5. We can preload any amount on each card if you wish us to. We can uh, have samples of some operators load $2.50 onto each card, or we do that for them, and then they sell it for five. So it gives the customer a sense of a deposit basically on the card, but it's not actually a value on the card so they don't toss it. Then they would come over to the loading station. They would place their card on the vending reader See, this one has $48. Once they put their card up, it then activates the bill acceptor. So then they can add whatever amount maximum that you would like to load onto a card. For instance, our facility in Puerto Rico, the maximum each person can have on their card is $60. So once they get to the $60 mark or within the $60 mark, our display would read maximum and it would spit the other bill out so they can't overload the card. If you have Debitech, for instance, or an existing card system, then you would also purchase our transfer station. Right now, this one is just showing a Debitech reader. Obviously, it's not working because it's a bad reader, but we would put in your reader and then our reader. So, an example, a Debitech customer would come in, they would insert their card, into the Debitech reader, put our card on the reader, and the money would automatically transfer. Again, this one's not active, so it's not. I can't show you anything specific. This is the reader kit itself. This is the. It's called the MEI Cash Flow. This one is for strictly offline cashless vending. This is the antenna, what we call the antenna, and our pre-drilled knockout plate. As you can see, it would go into a standard knockout plate area. We have four screws in the back and two cables coming from the back. So normally this would go in the knockout plate. Then this piece would be Velcroed, literally Velcroed, into the local area of the, the antenna in the vending machine. Then you have your MDB cables. So you've got your MDB cables here that would go into the vending machine control board. The vending process this is our sample machine. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna come here. We're going to place the card onto the reader. It shows $48. We're going to make our selection of 32. So it made the bend. 
Thank you. Enjoy. The reader goes back to green. Place the card back to the reader. And now it's $47. Okay, this machine is actually a SureVins machine. So it has the sensor. So that was the last one in number 32. So I'm going to place the card to the reader again. Right here, just like this. 32. Now it's going to try to bend. I've taken the card away. So now it starts flashing yellow. I put the card back goes back to $47. So it's given an instant refund because it does have a sure band and there is a sensor. So there, it knows that there was no product. Now, if it was not a sure band machine, it would take the money off the card. So that is something to consider. But again, the reader goes into a standard knockout plate. Very simple, clean look. Then whenever it's time to pull reports, we have our statistic key. This is just a, actually this is a 4K key and this is a, what's called our TML6. The TML6 would be plugged into your PC or laptop via USB and you would use our MDS View software. So once you take the key over, place it to the reader, it starts beeping and then it flashes to red. Once it flashes to red, the all of your sales data is on this key. Then you would take this key and upload to your computer. I do not have this one actually plugged into a computer, but we will pull the report and I will show you that shortly. The main reporting that you're going to be using is called MDS View. This is where you download the key using the TML6 and the key. This will give you the reports that you see over here to the left. If it's in bold, like this one here, that means it's got a new reading. If it's um, not bold, then you have you do not have a new reading for that machine. Right now we're gonna open the cold food machine. So over here you will see all of the readings that have been taken through history for this particular machine put in in 2018. So we're gonna go over here to October, the way the dates show up over here to the side, it will be the first two digits are the year, the second two digits are the month, the third two digits are the date, and 01 would be it's been read one time on that day. If there's more than one reading on that day, then it will be 02, 03, etc. So over here you can see that is a cold food machine, what type of reader it is, the fact that um, it was the reader date and time is October the 5th of 2020. It was first programmed uh, July the 8th of 2016. The previous reading for the statistic key was September 10th of 2020. This particular reading is October 5th of 2020. So there, here it will come down and we'll show you each one of the selections by selection number, the price, and how many units have sold for this actual reading. The actual quantity will always be the current reading that you just ta has taken. When you come over here to the side, you have the backup reading. This is your historical data from the time the reader was attached to the machine. So if we scroll down, you can see that this machine historically has done $15,731.95.
this particular reading between the previous reading and this reading, the sales were $650.75. You come over here to the far left, you can see open transactions or vend failed. That's where someone lost their money. There's nothing on this actual reading for the 650, but historically there was $7 in failures for this particular machine. This means basically that if it was a sure vend, they did not put their their card back when the vent, the food did not drop. So then we can come over here to to the reporting. You can open it up up here in HTML. I know that there is a speaking program for HTML, so we're going to go ahead and open that here. And this where you'll see where it pops up in an HTML file. You can print it. Um, it cannot be manipulated. That's one of the best things about this type of reporting, but it gives you all of the exact same data that you just saw in the MDS View program. I'm going to show you a loading station. One of the great things about the loading station is the fact that it will tell you how many ones, fives, tens, and twenties were loaded. This one is the first reading on this particular machine. So it tells you again how in the collection bag, how many ones, fives, tens, and twenties should be in that collection bag and what the exact total is for each collection. That's pretty much all the reporting that you're going to really need for our readers. So I uh, hope this helps and hope to hear from you soon. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. We would like to start out with our next session. Thank you, folks, for rejoining us. And uh, our first speaker will be Mark Pollock. Did I, I hope I said your name right. If I didn't, I apologize. Uh, but Mark's here to talk to us about... Um, Oh, Mark, Mark is the owner of uh, Lemark Insurance, and uh, he's going to explain to us about product liability, et cetera. So, uh, Mark, I'm just going to give you the floor here. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I am Mark Pollock. Uh, I am a owner of Lemark Insurance Agency. I've been in the commercial field of insurance for 38 years. Uh, today, I'm here to talk about the need for insurance, uh, whether or not you wish to have it or requirements or something you just basically want to obtain on your own. So the two basic questions you would have is why do you purchase or why would you want insurance in the first place? And there are two basic answers. The simplest one, which is pretty understandable, is simply about protecting protecting your assets. So those that have assets that wish to protect them against others that are trying to take them in the terms of lawsuits or in the scenario of a fire peril, if you're talking about property protection, uh, you simply buy coverage so that you sleep well at night in order to make sure that you do not uh, come into the scenario of ruining your financial world. The other scenario of why else you would purchase business insurance would be because of a requirement. For those of you who have locations where you move or, or secure a physical office space or manufacturing plant or commercial kitchen, if you're talking about a product manufacturer in terms of food, um, landlords from those locations demand and require you to have coverage. 
For those of you who are product manufacturers or sell into the marketplace where you are selling through vendors, those companies would also require you or your company to have coverage. So what are the differing coverages you would seek in order to protect yourself properly? Should you have a business personal property, that is a coverage you would obtain to seek fire insurance. The When you secure those kind of policies, it doesn't just come with fire by itself. The policy perils that are typically written within a business property form would include fire, wind, smoke, vandalism, aircraft landing on your property where it damages it, vehicular damage where cars run into the property and destroy it that way. You could have riot damage, um, vandalism, which is destruction of property without physically stealing it, which also is a synonym with malicious mischief. Those that come into the property, again, sledgehammer, destroy, spray paint, ruin without physically taking the items. Further perils that you can obtain in a property section can be an R, water damage, which is what they would refer to as a special form or in a special form policy, and theft perils that can be protected against actual thievery. So those are the property section coverages you can obtain. For those of you that are in differing areas, like in Florida, you would have hurricane and wind damage exposures, which are part of the policy. For those of us that are here in California, we have earthquake exposures, which are not inclusive to those automatic special form policies, they would have to be obtained separately. Moving on to product liability or liability in itself. Liability is one of the biggest key exposures that all of us have to secure or protect our business against others who are trying to sue us. When you obtain a business location, you are subject to an exposure to the basic slip and fall or premises liability. When you do go into these locations, landlords who seek to, well, when you sign a lease agreement, I should say, the landlords have in their boilerplate agreement that you are to secure certain insurance. It's always mandated that you're in need of the general premises liability. And in many cases, they will go back and ask you for the property coverage that I have specified at the outset as well. So as far as the liability coverages, what do you do or how much do you insure yourself for? A standard policy of liability comes with basically a million dollars of coverage. It is not 100% that that's the amount you have, but that is typically a standard in the industry. For those that are looking to save some money, you could potentially, if it's not required by a landlord, or lease agreement, secure a lower limit, but it's not recommended. The difference in cost is not tremendous for you to secure something lower than the million dollar standard number. So if you were to consider dropping your limit down to let's say $500,000 or maybe even $300,000, this cost savings is pretty slim where the savings might be five to 10% per increment. So it's not a massive number where you might definitely say, I want to go down to $300,000 to save money is to do it. Some of you who are potentially, especially in this virtual world, now are working out of your home. 
the home policies, there are business policies and business packages available for property and liability coverage for those that are working out of your house, depending upon the type of industry that you're in. Those policies are much more affordable to obtain, but the carriers who write it have limits as to the size company you possibly can be. Though, if you're working out of your house, I guess there's a good possibility or probability that you're not grossing more than a half a million dollars of revenue that would disqualify you from some of the carriers that I have and I've used out here from California. So... Um, moving on to different types of exposures you may have. So product liability, when you buy a general liability policy or have an office or business location, one of the boilerplate perils that are encompassed within what they call a comprehensive general liability form is product liability. So depending upon what kind of industry you're in, product liability protects you or your company against you selling a certain product into the marketplace that may cause a bodily injury or a property damage to a third party. Most products are pretty innocuous where they are very low risk. And I'll even comment within the food industry. If you are a food manufacturer, whether it be hamburgers, olives, any kind of uh, cookies or brownies or bakery goods, those are so what they would think, even though you might think someone can get sick to a usage of the product and maybe get tomain poisoning from it and sue you. In the industry, since it's so limited as far as a risk, the premium costs are very inexpensive to obtain. There are other liability protections or coverages that can be ex an exposure to each and every one of your businesses. When you hire employees and you're beyond just a one-person operation, you are then exposed to other liabilities that are as because you have these employees. So one of those exposures is if an employee is driving their own vehicle and doing an errand on behalf of your company, that is still in scope of employment. And any employee that you send to run an errand or drive or do anything on behalf, and inclusive of picking up supplies or going to the post office simply to deliver your mail, your company is and can be exposed and responsible for that employee driving their own vehicle. Hence the coverage that is obtainable or in the marketplace in certain policies is called employer's non-owned automobile liability. So what happens is, is I have a staff and should I send my staff out to do an inspection or simply go to pick up a policy or in case go to the, to the post office, that employee, because they're a not going to tell me no as the employer, they're now driving during scope of employment. Should that employee driving their own vehicle crash and have a major accident, my firm will be considered to be responsible. And what everyone tries to do is they try to sue the deepest pockets out there who have the potential monies. So this is an optional peril to purchase where you can protect your business against any employee exposure for them should they be out and about driving even within their own vehicle. 
You then have other exposures to your business by having these employees, depending upon whether or not they have access to computer theft or thievery, monies and securities to your business, whether you're uh, taking in cash like a retail store could be or a restaurant, et cetera, or those that are even within the computer and those that can handle bank accounts and have exposures to that. A lot of the business package policies to encompass or enhance yourself and protect yourself further, they could, don't mean they automatically do, but a lot of the good boilerplate policy packages have crime insurance or employee dishonesty coverage. So if you were to secure a business package policy where it's a boilerplate or broad policy option, you should check with your agent or broker and verify all of the miscellaneous coverages that could come with it, which can be employee dishonesty or crime protection. Another exposure to your business where you have a, a, a an exposure to protect your staff in terms of their injuries, workers' compensation is an exposure where employees, again, working in scope of employment, should they suffer an injury while in on the job, they do and have needs to get disability protection or injury protection. Here in the state of California, workers' compensation is one of the mandatory laws that employers must obtain in order to protect their staff. And those that do not obtain it can get fined by their respective states. So those are some liability coverages that are exposures to certain businesses that you have. Um, you can then get into um, umbrella policy protection. For those of you who have large business exposures or substantial assets to your business, you can have a lawsuit that might go after you for a much larger sum of money. So if you have a catastrophic exposure where, let's just say as an example, a food product, and let's say someone did choke on a chicken bone or a baked items or cookies or brownies or something where they died literally, and that's kind of an extreme scenario. But the truth of the matter is, I always say is, what is your life worth to you in a dollar amount? And the scenario is, is my life to me is worth millions and millions of dollars, what your earning capacity might be, or what your potential is, etc. So if something were to happen catastrophically to a third party, where God forbid, someone were to hypothetically die from a food product, you probably would get a lawsuit that would be far in excess of the million dollar exposure that would be out there in terms of uh, what your standard policy might be. So when you buy an umbrella policy, you're able to go above and beyond your existing primary policy, which my hypothetical would be is to secure a million dollars. You could purchase the umbrella to go above that number buy another one or two or five, et cetera, depending upon the size of your company and whether or not you truly have exposure to a large lawsuit. The umbrella policy covers over multiple policies and typically over all of those that have liability assigned to it. 
So an umbrella goes over multiple policies, such as your general liability coverage. It could be your a commercial auto liability coverage, should you actually have owned autos by a company or business. It would cover over your workers' compensation as well, which is another form of liability because you get employer's liability coverage in the event that you get sued by an employee who comes after you, et cetera. So that policy comes with an employer's liability. And another liability, uh, well, crime is not, uh, you could buy cyber liability in case you have businesses that have cyber exposures. Um, so basically, the umbrella policy can cover above and beyond all of those differing policies should you suffer a higher limit of exposure. So if you had a need for bonding, and I kind of touched upon the crime coverage, but bonding and crime can be one and the same. If you're not able to get a business package in relation to the employee dishonesty coverage, you can secure a lot of these policies separately for bonding coverage or crime coverage. A lot of these policies are available as standalone should you not have the complete exposures of all of these different lines. So pretty much sums up uh, most of the lines of coverage you have. Uh, one other policy that I didn't touch upon is employment practices liability insurance. It's somewhat of a unique line that does not come automatically with these policies or the business package policies. And employment practices liability is absolutely prevalent in the world of our exposures. So it comes with wrongful termination, discrimination, sexual abuse and molestation, failure to promote or hire, it can touch upon the American Disabilities Act scenario. So as an example, with a restaurant who doesn't have ramps or businesses that don't have elevators, you could, you or a business owner or a building owner can get lawsuits because of this American Disabilities Act's exposure. And this can be obtained or secured through those employment practices, liability policies that pick up those exposures. It's not a normal policy. It's not one that comes automatically within certain package policies. And so you should really think about what your exposures are and what you may have needs to obtain. So this pretty much wraps up a lot of the differing types of exposures or top policy coverages that are available to the commercial lines if should you have a business. I would say if you are in need of certain uh, recommendations or brokers, et cetera, and I use the word brokers, a lot of the times, a lot of the policies, if you have a unique business, you would seek the usage or the need for a, from a broker versus someone who is what we call a captive agent who writes for only one specific company. By going to a broker, you can have the availability, in my sense, of having the representations because I represent about 100 carriers on the marketplace. And therefore, I have a luxury of seeking all of these different types of policies and policy forms with many different carriers, which gives me the flexibility or ability to secure differing coverages for different clientels and different business types. So that's pretty much going to conclude my conversation regarding this. And if you have any questions, I can open the floor for those. Wonderful. I, I, I do have a question for you. Um, Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, 
I'm going to do my best to phrase this question to you um, uh, on employee theft. Now, um, I, maybe you touched on this and maybe I missed it, but what do I need to do to sign up for something like that? And if I feel there's been employee theft, what do I need to do to prove that? That's a really good question. And that's one of the biggest problems with having differing claims where claims in order to be able to be paid, one must be able to substantiate the loss. So for you to simply say, like, I'm missing monies out of my till in a retail location, that's going to be difficult to prove in order to claim employee theft. Um, the scenario is, is that a much more readily or, or ease of, of trying to pinpoint a theft loss might be through computers or bank accounts or where they have, I mean, I've seen certain clients who have had these issues in the past where they have found that they've rerouted checks that have been cashed because they had access to the company bank account. And the, uh, the company who did have a claim was able to prove that checks were written to a a bogus industry where they were able to prove that these checks were going to invoices that weren't proper invoices. So they tracked it back to the party in question who was writing them out, which was a, an employee inside and was able to go after them, get reimbursements from the carriers and then also go after them criminally. Okay. This is Artis. Um, I wanted to know when um, you're, Doing the workman's compensation, can you give that on contractors as well as um, by the hour employees? You can get it on any employee. And the true answer is, is that a person only has to be working for you even on a temporary basis. So it could be even as low as one hour if they are considered under your employee, regardless of the length of time you are exposed to that person's uh, protection where you need to protect them. So it only takes minutes for a person to get hurt while working for you, even if they, you hire them as a one, uh, hour person. Now that said, when you hire quote unquote, those temporary people who might be independent of you, you might seek those types of services that have their own workers compensation. If they don't get it or have it, then you should, even if you had no payroll, there are many companies inclusive of contractors who secure the policies because they're just simply forced to prove they have it, irrespective of the fact that they may not have any direct employees on file. But where that helps you is should you then ever hire someone over the course of the term of your policy, you will then have the automatic protection so you don't have a fear that they won't be protected under workers' compensation. So the bottom line answer is secure a policy in some cases if you think you might be getting employee staff, even on a temporary basis, or for those of you even in the contractual or the contracting field, you probably are required to get it to prove when you get a client who hires you for business, regardless of whether you have staff or not. Yes, so my question is on commercial liability is that followed, is that covered under the umbrella policy? The commercial liability policy is the primary policy. So you have to secure a primary policy, which means the first layer or first limit. So you get the primary policy, if it's a general liability, up to the first million dollars. When you buy an umbrella policy over 
that policy or multiple policies. It is a, an additional million, two, three, et cetera, above and beyond that first policy. So that if someone had a massive claim that paid out hypothetically $2 million, the first policy, the primary policy would pay the first million. Then the umbrella policy would then kick in that additional million if you had that umbrella limit amount. All right. Thank you for your answer. That's very interesting. Certainly. You and your uh, spot working for multiple uh, companies that can you can work with to sell policies. Um, across the country, there's folks like you who can do that. Um, is there a certain place I should be looking to find some somebody here in Minnesota that could do that kind of thing? Um, if you're looking for, again, the comment is you probably want to seek out a an, a, an insurance broker. And okay. I qualify the broker has the ability to have multiple carriers or uh, appointments to multiple companies. As brokers, we represent you as the client and therefore are not married to any one single carrier. So the difference is that you could have captive agents who write potentially for one specific company and therefore they have to direct all their business to that one company. An example of that, needless to say, is State Farm Insurance, who is the largest insurer in the <laughs> United States yep. um, in premium size, et cetera. They're a phenomenal carrier, top-notch quality carrier, but they have only the availability to write their one option, et cetera. So as a little more background, I do write around State Farm Insurance, and my personal business expertise is around hard-to-place or difficult lines to obtain in the marketplace. So I actually do work with about 100 different farm agents to work around them because they have, uh, let's say, a boilerplate type of business owner policy form, and they cannot do certain types of businesses. So as an example, if you had... Um, certain product manufacturers, let's say a pickle manufacturer. Um, it's a pretty simple product, but it's not something they typically would write. And therefore, if they couldn't do it, they would refer it out or tell that, tell the, their client that there's a broker friend of theirs that can handle this type of line. So that's kind of the advantage of being a broker is we have the availability to uh, market many other places, but our disadvantages, we don't have a brand like a state farm. Got it. You're uh, you're striking too close to home for me. <laughs> so you're probably a State Farm client. I am. <laughs> and the reason why State Farm, you're a client of theirs, is they are the best company on the street, and that's how they got to be number one. There's nothing wrong with what they're able to do if they are able to write your policy. And they're right. typically very competitively priced when they do so. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much. This has been so incredibly informative. And uh you certainly have given us a lot to think over here on uh, business insurance. That's for sure. So um, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a nice afternoon, everyone. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. I think we could probably just generally talk about the importance of thinking about retirement and setting aside money for your retirement. And there are brokers for that, too, as well, for finding insurance companies that will sell annuities, 
uh, for you to put money into or for 401k plans as well as other uh, um, plans like the self-employed insurance plan where you can save money for yourself, but you also save money for your employees. Now, generally, they require you to have the employees need to be working at least 30 hours a week for them to have to be covered, although you can cover them if they work less than that. But generally, most employers don't want to pay into a retirement plan for a a really part-time employee. So I, I don't know a ton about retirement. However, here's what I do know that I think is important. The earlier you can start putting away a little nest egg for retirement, the less hard you're going to have to work later on as you're getting closer to that retirement age. Um, that I know for a fact. And um, I, I, I have to say, personally, I haven't been as good a, a keeper of that as I should be. So I, I need to learn on these uh, subjects as well. But uh, certainly, I'm sure some of you have had that opportunity to put a little nest egg away and you're on the right track. It's just so important to have something built for your future. Um, you know, there's always talk of what may happen to Social Security as we go down the road. I find it hard to believe that that would be uh, eliminated, but uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> as as you can see in life, who could have predicted two years ago where we'd be today? So um, you're just wise to be hedging your bets. Mm-hmm. Scott, you have a hand raised if you would like to take it. Oh, absolutely. Okay, area code 715. Thank you. Dan, do you have anything you'd like to share with this subject? Just in regards to the retirement plans, um, you know, some of um, us old dogs on this uh, planet, we, you know, Mark Breen um, from uh, Ohio has been one of our investment counselors that we've had at Sagebrush for quite a few years, one of our sponsors. But um, he convinced me to invest into a solo 401k. Um, it's, solo 401k is a little different than a 401k in that if you, if all of your employees, except with the exception of family members, work less than 1,000 hours per year, you can invest whatever up to, depending on your age, 15 to 25% of your um, net net income into a solo 401k without having uh, the obligation of creating a, an employ, uh, employment plan or, uh, for your employees. And, so forward, and I've had tremendous success with that. Um, I don't want to get into any figures, but uh, I probably won't live long enough to spend what um, I put into that along with by investing in the stock and make some choice, uh, some good selections on the stock market um, where I gained as high as 58% per year on my investments. And, um, you know, you can, you know, your family members, you know, you can work, you know, if they work, your spouse or whatever works 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you know, that that's all right. They could, you can have a, a solo, you include them in a solo one for a 401k without, um, you know, committing yourself to investing into your um, out-of-family out members. So the solo 401k has really been a um, tremendous asset uh, to us here and uh, it's something that you really want to look at. And when I first got into it, and the reason I got into it with Mark is 
it, it, it was new at the time 20 years ago, and a lot of investment counselors were, were not aware of it. You know, as you know, the investment options changed over the last two decades. And uh, once they, you know, when, the, when so many corporations dissolved their retirement plans, then the federal government and the state governments all stepped in and tried to secure them. And as a result, the 401k came out of that. Then the, then the sole 401k came out of that, along with the IRA and the KEOs and so on and so forth. So there are so many options out there for investing. And as Scott mentioned, the earlier you do it, the better. The earlier you do it, the better. Because uh, uh, you invest it in, uh, um, you know, in the good stock situation, the good stock market. And now with uh, the in the last three years, a new one entered the market, um, Lincoln Financial, and uh, there you can uh, you don't yield as high uh, um, yield as high, but you're guaranteed not to lose. Uh, they absorb, but you 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 will never probably you know achieve a 58% um, growth, but uh, you will not lose in if the stock market. Uh, Goes down or whatever, you're uh, you always hold your own, and so there's uh that's a there's so many options out there, and I think when Mark comes on, his partner comes on, we can explore all those options, and um, hopefully um, we can help somebody, you know, save some um, money for retirement, but uh, as well as, um, lower your income tax bill. Uh, them are all so you know a lot of them. Uh, will reduce your tax, your income tax, uh, on the federal and on most state levels. But I thought I'd throw that in there, Scott. Thank you. No, I appreciate that very much. I uh, I, I know for a while I tried the uh, lottery system, and that didn't seem to work out real well for me. So I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I better come well, up with another option. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing too is that you know I'm being from Wisconsin which is an agricultural state primarily and a tourist state. And as we all know, farmers are the biggest gamblers in the world. They gamble on the weather. They gamble their life savings on the weather every year. And uh, so and basically you, you kind of use that as a rule of thumb. If you're not willing to take a chance, you're probably not going to get as far ahead in life as you could be if you're willing to take that opportunity. It's kind of like when they come out a new flavor of potato chips or a new, flavor, new candy bar. You got to buy that first case to try it. You may lose it, but you may find a winner. And so you always got to be willing to gamble. If you're totally against gambling, you will survive in the Randolph Shepherd program, but uh, not to the extent that if you are willing to take uh, a chance right. or what they, uh, an educated guess at if this product's going to make it or not. So you always right. got to be willing to extend your hand out there and say, let's try this. Let's try this. So I'll just be related to gambling because, you know, farmers are the biggest gamblers in the entire world. Mm -hmm. Yes. As another agricultural state, absolutely. They, uh, uh, my hats off to them because, uh, I can think of many years that they took that big chance in the spring. They went to the bank, borrowed some money, got some seed, threw it in the ground and what came up but the weeds, you know? So they, they certainly do take that risk. And, uh, that would apply for us as well. We, you know, there are times you have to take a chance on a product. I, I've taken some chances. I've, I've stumbled into things sometimes and thought, I have no idea. Will this work? And I found out it did and it worked well. 
Um, so you just, you never know. You just never know. But you gotta, you gotta be able to want to try. With that, I guess, you know, um, my underlying message there is that you've got to get out and find out what's available. Meet with your uh, distributor reps, meet with your factory reps, come to Sagebrush, get some samples, and they, they always bring the latest and greatest of the new uh, products that they have. Go to NAMA. NAMA, uh, all the samples will be there, all the new products, and give you a good idea what what uh, you may want to try in your particular vending machine, snack bar, cafeteria, or micromarket. There's, um, prior to pan- the pandemic, the product manufacturers usually introduced about 3,000 um, new items per year, and only about five percent, 4-5% would survive more than six months. So they, you know, the manufacturers are, are well always taking a, a gamble, taking a chance, and it's up to us to take that, to use our experience by attending Sagebrush, looking at the samples, going to them, looking at the samples, and you can see if, uh, or if you, or, or your um, significant other is got good vision, they can tell you. We can tell by the size of the package. Hey, this is going to stand out in my microwave. This is going to show up in my vending machine. But if you're if you're totally blind, then your your partner can tell you, hey, yeah, that's got nice color contrast. It's going to show up, and people are going to buy it. They're going to try it. Um, and so there's this. It's just a basic marketing one-one. <coughs> and the, the more more we can learn about with uh, what's out there and what's available to us, uh, the more successful we'll be with our bottom lines. And and let's let's face it, let's not be bashful. We all are interested in our bottom lines. Well, it does make a difference. And I, I see Mark is with us now. So, Mark, thank you for joining us. And uh, we're sorry about the little mix-up on time. But um, certainly if you've got a little time, you can share uh, some of your knowledge with us about what we should be thinking about for investments. Uh, we'd love to hear it. Jim, can you kind of start us out a little bit maybe? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, my role is in the qualified plan arena. And I was going to talk about CalSavers, uh, 401ks versus SEPs and what's going on in the marketplace. The 401k marketplace is ever changing right now. There's been a big consolidation in the industry, as, as many of you probably know. Empire Power is being Pac-Man. Uh, they gobbled up Mass Mutual, Prudential. Uh, they're just buying everybody. They are now the largest provider under $50 million. Now, with this consolidation in the industry, it's driven pricing all the way to the bottom. There's a race to the bottom. So if you have any clients that have not bid their plan the last two years, they're overpaying. Uh, just That's just a matter of fact. So there's a lot of deals to be had out there. But let's talk about Mark. I think you guys are going to be looking at SEPs versus 401Ks. Um, at least at where we are, we don't see many SEPs at all. Uh, reason being is the employer, right, has to put the money in and it's immediately invested in the employees. Or the 401k, we can make contributions when and if we want to, uh, use it as a carrot or a way to attract employees, and then we can put a vesting schedule on it. So if they don't stay here X number of years, they don't get that money. It reverts back to the plan. We can also design the plan to benefit different job classifications. So if we have some people we want to maybe get a little more money to, we can, uh, go ahead and move those shelves around and get them to do that there. Uh, in terms of investments in, in the plan, everything is open architect now. So the whole world is available. 
But what we run are institutional share classes. So there's no extra charges on them. So the client gets the lowest fees possible. And then we charge our fair fee to do everything for them. But we, we take them from A to Z from the beginning, designing the plan, implementation, uh, monitoring it, making sure people get educated, know how to use it. Uh, the beauty of 401k is it's, it's totally up to the participant whether they want to participate or not. They have access to their money via loans or hardship withdrawals. Unlike these Roth IRAs that have taken hold in about 11 states in the United States, where they're forcing companies to enroll their employees into this after-tax IRA contribution. In the state of California, that impacts 283,000 businesses. And they've all been told to roll, enroll in CalSavers at 5% after-tax of every employee, including part-time. So any company in California has five or more employees, including part-time, has to participate in the state plan or offer an alternative plan, a SEP, a 401k, a cash balance plan. If you do not comply out here, it's a $250 fine after 90 days, another 500 after the next 90. So it's $750 fine per employee if you don't have something in place. And that's the way the country is going. There's legislation now. They want to do this nationwide as part of the upcoming agenda in the Build Back America plan. It's, it's, it's embedded in that legislation. So it may impact every state in the union. Uh, we're doing just tons of these. I have the 401k. Uh, negotiated where it only costs a client 250 bucks to start a plan and meet the requirement. And uh, they're, they're ready to go. We put in fiduciary protections in case they get sued. So they're indemnified from all costing claims and legal fees. So it's, it's a nice package. It gets people where they want to do, depending how far your client wants to take it, they, they can put up to $63,000 a year into the plan if they want to, or they can put nothing into it. It's totally flexible. So we help them with this, that design and how we're going to put the plan together. That's my quick overview. Do you want more? Do you have questions? I think you covered that pretty well. I think we can uh, move on. And if we have any questions at the end, we'll come back to it. Yep. Please ca- call Mark. You know, there's there's a lot of flexibility in these plans in terms of investments and deductions. And we can actually book deductions for 2021 and not fund it until 2022, which can hmm. be attractive. Wow. Thank you. Um, how, how large does a uh, small or small can a business be? I mean, should a, if they just have a couple employees, do you think it's wise to do that? I have businesses between one and 5,000 employees. And even at one, uh, it, it makes sense. I mean, one of the beauties, if you're a small business owner, uh, you, you got to be aware of litigation, right? Uh, and if you put your money, think of OJ Simpson, if you put it in a retirement plan, nobody can touch it. So you can go along through no fault of your own, get a judgment against you. But if your money's in that 401k, it's creditor protected. It's yours forever. We have a large number of one, two, three, four, five man plans. In California, with, with the five person, you know, we have hundreds of five person plans now. We will move on to our next uh, presenter, Mark Simon. Mark, uh, thank you for joining us. Mark, I, we're just going to kind of turn the floor right over to you and let you just dive in. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about investments here, and uh, we're, we're quite curious. We want to learn what uh, you have to offer us. Did that cover the topic you were looking for? I know we're running, we came into this a little bit late. Uh, was this on general retirement or just specific to what we covered? Boy, I, I, I think anything general retirement-wise, if you've got a few little Sniglets you can throw in there as well. I think that would be just as helpful. Great. I can do that for you. So the traditional world of retirement, 
as we all know, most people know 401k, 403b, KEO, SEP, pretty much IRA. All of those types of accounts are one way that you can uh, retire. Uh, and I'm talking about import, has put money away to retire. And I'm talking about either the owner of the company or individual employees of a company. Uh, there is another asset class that you can use that's effective in the same way Jim was talking about as far as judgments uh, and things like that is protected in that way. But it also has in it a, a tremendous advantage. It doesn't have an upfront tax advantage where what you put into it, you would get written, uh, get a tax break. But um, it has a tax advantage on the other end where you don't pay taxes on what you're using in that retirement account. And um, that is something uh, that is really beneficial. And so you can put in as much as you want, and there's no limits in that regard. You can take it out when you want. So there's no 59 and a half uh, with the penalty issue. And, of course, there's no required mandatory distribution, which is also part of the 401k uh, IRA world. At this point, it's age 70 and a half. You have to start taking distributions. And this other account I'm talking about, you would not have to do that. You take it out when you want, and you don't pay taxes taken out properly. Um, so that is another advantage. That is called cash value life insurance. And, of course, you have to be able to qualify for it. But a lot of business owners I work with like that. They don't have to do that with employees, and employees can do it on their own. They also use it as a way to incentivize uh, top employees if they have a sales organization, let's say. And as we all know, uh, often 80% of the sales are some 20% of the people. And so if you have someone who's producing quite a bit and you want them to stay because they have relationships with your particular clients, that's another way uh, that you can use uh, to what we would call the golden handcuffs uh, as a way to keep them there and yet give them a tremendous benefit. So that is another topic um, that is uh, very, very uh, seldom talked about, but I think it would be good here given what you would ask. I hope that's a little helpful. It definitely is, yes. Yeah, if you'd like more information, just let me know. I'm uh, able to talk about that a lot more, of course. That was a very, very short conversation about it. But those are the tenets, basic, basic tenets of that. Yes, yes. And wondering if we have any quick questions from the audience before we move on to our next speaker here. I know we've kind of crammed some stuff in, but uh, do we have any questions? You have. Dan, join us, please. Thanks, uh, Scott. Um, Mark and Jim, um, uh, I was wondering if you could, just, um, as many of us are um, sole uh, proprietorships or whatever, and you know we work by ourselves, or we have a family member work with us, or we have a uh, part-time staff. Could you touch upon the advantages of a solo 401k to um, a small business person? A solo K gives you a lot more flexibility, a lot larger limits the ability to access that money if you need to, and the Creditor Protection Act uh, with it. So, uh, you know, th these work. You know, we, we just do individual 401Ks. We don't use the IRA one that much because the, it's, you can't get the money without big penalties, and you can lose it in a lawsuit. So we, we don't do an IRA base, but we just do a standard 401K, and uh, we do tons and tons of those. 
And we also, you know, you said you're a sole proprietorship, but maybe some family members. Um, you know, if you're looking to leave that or sell that to your children, we should eventually have a cash balance plan because the cash balance plan will allow you to pass that on on a pre-tax basis because the money that would be paid to you by the kids can be pre-taxed. So they get the money, goes into a qualified plan, and you use it whenever you need it. So it's a nice tool to to move that along without paying a whole lot of taxes. And create deductions anywhere between a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year in these type plans. And Jim, maybe you can tell them what is the limit regarding the write-off of money put into a solo 401k. Uh, you know, I I, I think it right now I'm not really sure. I, I got to take a look what it is because we we really don't do those. But uh, let me let me look it up really really quick here. What is the minimum you have to invest to start a 401k? There is no minimum. Because I've talked to uh, uh, a gentleman who was doing them a few years ago, and he said he wouldn't take anything less than a hundred thousand startup. Yeah, you, uh, and and that's because they don't think they can make enough money off of it, right? And they only want larger account balances. We, we don't do that. We just help people, and eventually, you know, we'll make money down the road. Because in all honesty, these startup and small plans are a, a, a money loser. We lose money in the beginning. But, uh, you know, we get you on the right path. We earn your trust and your belief. And further down the road, when it grows, that's when we start getting our payoff. And that's I will tell you that in well, six years, we have never lost a plan. So that's why our model is that way. Because once once we work with a client, we, we, we don't lose them. And that's one thing with um you know, with uh, even like I'm going to use Wells Fargo as an example because I'm one of my my daughters works there, but they they don't want clients less than five hundred thousand dollars. Right, and that's one right. thing with um you know a, a solo four hundred one k. And you're right, uh, the, some agents prefer higher startup. You know, but um you know knowing our business, we build you know because I'm into the seven and eight figures now with my solo four hundred one k. Yeah, and uh, so it it does. Does work, but I'm sure my agent in the first two years didn't make any money on me <laughs> for the time he put into it. But now he's very happy he has me as a client. Yeah. You know, we're a family run business and started off small and, and we still have that small uh, feel and, you know, treat clients as, as people, not, not as numbers or accounts. And we do our business a little bit differently. Most vendors will tell you that this is how we're going to service you and, you know, take it or leave it. We, we tell, ask you to tell us how you want to be serviced and we do that. So we've kind of flipped the service model in the industry and it's really, really resonating well with, with, with the clients out here. Let me expand on that a, just a little bit. So uh, explain my relationship with Jim. So I'm the broker. So I am free to use whatever vendor I choose fit. So I've been using, um, this vendor CPS that, that um, who's on the phone with us, Jim, for ma- for many years, and that is because of what you're talking about. See, they're, I'm their customer, right? And so uh, I work well with them, and I have obviously as a broker the opportunity to work with whoever I want to in the whole country. And of course, as any like anyone else in business, I get called all the time. But you know, I built a relationship and with with CPS and, and and gentlemen like Jim. And because of that, this is what I like to bring to my clients as well, is, is the best services available. And I can do that as a broker. I don't have to hit any numbers like someone who's a sales guy for some company. 
And I like that model and it served me well in helping my clients. And so that's, that's where, where Jim comes in. And, and what he talked about is how it sounds like all of us like to treat our customers as individuals, not as uh, fitting into the scheme of the business, but fitting into the client's scheme. And uh, so, so yeah. hopefully that help is helpful. Well said. Yeah, that, um, as a follow-up, um, Mark and Jim, could you um, bring us up to speed on the, the new product on the market about three years ago, Lincoln Financial? Um, could you give us your uh, professional opinion on Lincoln? It's getting to be quite popular, I understand, with many investors. Well, I'm not 100% sure you have to tell me which product, but I, I can tell you that Lincoln is a very fine company. I, I work with them. I, I work as a broker. I'm, I'm right now appointed with, I think, 44 different companies because, again, my clients' needs aren't always within one company. So uh, Lincoln is a fine company for certain designs, and that's the fun that I get in my job. Some people think my work could be boring. It's really not. I take into account what my clients trying to accomplish and, and help direct them to the product to do that. So. Um, there's a lot of things in the, out there, but as a company, I can tell you without knowing specifically the product you're talking about, Lincoln is a fine company. Uh, again, I work with them. I work with Allianz. I work with uh, Athene. Uh, I work with John Hancock. I work with Mass Mutual, uh, Ohio National. There's many, many companies that I work with, depending on how that'll fit into my clients' needs. Uh, so um, um, I, I'm not sure that answers everything you're asking, but Lincoln is a fine company. Yeah, because I, okay. I started out with Ohio National, and then I switched over to Lincoln Financial. Now, once I retired, I switched over to Financial. But Ohio right. National treated me well, quite well. And that happens, too. When I have a client, uh, as you just mentioned, you can you move the plan and change things around depending on the age of the client and what they're trying to accomplish. Because some things are good for accumulation. Some good are better for payout or, or as we say, distribution. Uh, some are... So some or both, uh, for instance, I, it just depends. It, it, I hate to say, not give you a straight answer, but really it does. It depends on what you're doing, and, and that's what you do. When new products come on board, um, uh, sometimes you'll move it, uh, and again, depending on what the goal is of the client, where they're at. Um, I will say, generally, as 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 a, a, a client gets more mature, um, you know, you tend to want to take risk off the table. And so then you may switch products because this product is better at doing that and yet still has a decent payout. It, it, it all depends what we're trying to accomplish. It really, it really does. Sorry to be vague, but it, it, it depends on what I'm doing. That proves the value of, of having people like you, uh, you know, working for us. I think that's why we like to have people of your profession with us that uh, keep us updated on all the changes that occur in the investment world because uh, we ourselves – had the wherewithal nor the time to, to monitor all this stuff. So we really appreciate uh, your willingness to share your expertise with us. Thank you. Thank you. Re- real quick, I know you want me. We got to get to the next person. I believe it's Malena. I, I think. Yep. Uh, real, and I know Malena. Hello, Malena. I hope you're doing well. Um, what I was going to say is that real quickly, I came from Mass Mutual, so I earned my rights, so to speak, my, my uh, for a tremendous amount of training through Mass Mutual at, out of the Beverly Hills office. And then I went on my own. So you'll talk to Jim. He also came in from in a similar way uh, through Voya Financial, uh, as an, it's one of the companies he's worked with. So we've been both places. So we can appreciate what you're saying. That's why we moved over to be kind of that way, where it's open. He even mentioned the open architecture. He, he mentioned 
of the 401k as opposed to having only these investments because when you work for one company, that's kind of, that happens sometimes. So that's, we see the advantages. That's why we became, we're doing what we're doing. But thank you. Well, Mark, Jim, we thank you so very much for bringing your expertise and, uh, we, we may have a future uh, with you folks again. Maybe we, where we can get time settled and we can really dive much deeper into these subjects. But uh, for today, we have uh, another, our next speaker waiting for us. So I, I think we need to move on to her. Thank so you for thank having you, us. Yeah, thank you. So very Appreciate much the opportunity. And uh, you whetted our appetite to dig into this maybe a little deeper further down the road. So thank you so very much for coming. All right. Bye. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right. Our next presentation is uh, Navigating the Trends of Employment Com- Compensation. And Man, what a time we need to have someone come on and talk to us about all of this because uh, – Wow, there's a lot going on out in the marketplace, and uh, uh, we have with us uh, Malena Otero, and uh, she is with Strategies HR Alliance, and uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to you, Malena, because we're getting a little bit of a late start here, so uh, please enlighten us with what we should be doing to, to capture those employees and um, retain them. All right, so good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Milena Otero, and I am in, have been in HR for about 25 years or so. And um, we are definitely seeing something new uh, with this pandemic. Aside from the pandemic, the results of the pandemic and, and how it affects the workplace. Um, one of the things that, that we want to talk to you, definitely compensation is a moving target. And the whole compensation package is a moving target. What we knew before about how we can attract and retain employees has changed a little bit. And so um, I think we need to, in order to stay ahead of the game, we need to be aware and we need to make decisions that affect our business. So I want to talk to you quickly about, let's start with minimum wage. You know, minimum wage has been a topic of, of discussion for a while. Um, and I have a, a little PowerPoint. I don't know if I can share that. Um, so as minimum wage goes up, depending on the state and the city you're in, because, for example, here in California, we follow California's minimum wage. In addition, each city has taken it upon themselves to to set their own minimum wage. So companies really have to be up to date with what their state, county, um, city is asking for and, and ensure that we are um, following the proper protocol when it comes to um, to eight wages. However, right now, the minimum wage is not something that is attracting employees. As you know, uh, many organizations are having trouble hiring people. And, and there's a different, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is because people are concerned about COVID. Uh, the second is because people got used to working from home and no and and no long and moved and no longer are flexible to come back to their to their current role. And so competition is definitely driving salaries up. So if you thought that you could hire somebody with 
with the current with the current salary minimum wage that that is proven to be very difficult so what can you do to attract and retain your employees i think one of the most important things is i hear from working with uh employees can you know in candidates that i'm looking to place at a different um for different positions is they want a couple of different things first thing is they want to like the environment and be happy at the in the environment they're in so let's not forget our current employees and what are we doing to engage them what are we doing to hear them have we have we done a survey to ask them what is important to them aside from money because money's not the only thing that they are looking for they could be looking for recognition you know do we do you have an environment where you give either a small bonus a small prize or just even recognition to their peers that they did a great job do we have um what are your benefits like i know benefits are ex- very expensive and you just talked seems like to mark about benefits and um benefits are important for many um not for all but for many as well as um so for benefits they are expensive but you need to shop around find out what you can offer but there's different multiple alternatives when it comes to benefits um how you can cover the employee and you know portion of the of the family or or even how you can direct them to programs such as covered california or other programs that the state may have but as long as you help them they will feel happy about that the other thing is retirement maybe maybe you can't contribute but just setting up the plan for them and making it easy for deductions will be a benefit flexibility we find that a lot of employees are want flexible schedules meaning can you work from home can they maybe do a hybrid some days from home some day from the, some days from the office can they come a little later uh if they have childcare concerns and speaking of childcare are are there maybe you don't your business can't afford to pay childcare but maybe you can provide resources for them so and there's a lot of ways to do this if you say like wow my business is so small i don't have i can't possibly find all this you know um where am i going to find all these resources your some of your vendors already have them when when you talk about your benefits brokers they already know some of these um supplemental benefits that can help and they know people that you know they can bring in to help you with providing resources to the employees community centers um and the last one that I'll talk about is time off sometimes they just need a break so uh you know you can offer a mental health day or you know a t- day off for the holiday an extra holiday or pick your own holiday um so employees are looking for this as we're talking about to them as hr people are are having conversations we are really trying to figure out what is going to keep our employees happy you know larger companies like amazon are offering uh tuition reimbursement they're offering different flexible hours i think i think the one key thing that doesn't hopefully uh, won't cost too much cost to an, a company is flexibility flexible hours flexible to work home flex, flexibility um is very important so how do you do this when you have expenses so one of the things that we learned is that some most people can still be productive while working from home and so maybe you can save money on the rent from your building um you know 
maybe you don't have to do travel anymore and you save that money and you can incorporate into some of these rewards program. So that is some, some thoughts and ideas I wanted to share with you. The other thing to consider is really having that compensation structure for your business that is competitive. You can have, you can do your, your research yourself. You can have a consultant do your research, but are you really competitive for your market? Are you, and then if you have, if you're, one of those employers who are flexible and you have employees in multiple states, how is your compensation structured? Is it based on where your office is located or based on where the employees live? Is that, you know, how are you paying your, your, your employees? Do you have a tier structure for them to be able to, to have some aspiration to move up to the next level? And how are you, you know, based on your competitors, are they all going to your competitors because they're paying 50 cents more? Well, you would have paid the 50 cents had you known, maybe. So you need to be aware of what the market is saying. How does turnover affect your business? Sometimes it's worth paying that extra 50 cents, dollar, two dollars, because people take knowledge with them and it really affects your business. And so um, we need to ensure that we're, that we're retaining our employees, and especially for those skill sets that are very difficult to find. We want to make sure that we keep them on site. So when thinking about flexibility, you have to consider, is it good for your business? If you are a front-facing business, then that's not going to help because you need your employees to be there with your customers. However, you can think of other flexibilities, other, as I mentioned, recognitions, bonus, employee of the of, of the year, employee of the week, employee of the month with, you know, a gift certificate to a gift card to Starbucks. Anything goes a long way. Employees know that they're valuable right now. Um, they always have been, but now more than ever because of competition and they want to hear from you and they want to know that you acknowledge them. So that is a, a little bit of what I put together, but I wanted to hear more about um, I wanted to give you those tips and ideas, but I really want to address any questions and, and address any concerns that you may have and, and provide some tips on how we can support with the information provided to you and, and relevant to your business. Scott, any questions that I can answer? Oh, we, uh, folks, we must have some questions on the subject because, uh, man, there's a lot going on in the, in the work world and, uh, um, yeah, I, I know for myself, for all the things you discussed for uh, people as employers, what what do you think is the single most important thing we should be focused on to help ourselves out here and find find and retain employees? That's a hard question. This, but if I had to say a single one is be very aware of what the what competitors, what the market is paying and what they're asking them to do. Uh, so the job description along with the pay. Because things have changed. Before we were able to put an ad out to work at McDonald's for minimum wage. And now if you drive by a lot of fast food places, they're, they're offering bonuses, sign on bonuses, um, retention. If you stay for 90 days, you get a retention bonus. So I think we need to be re- very aware of what in your own business, what are your competitors doing? What is the market outside doing? Okay. So those, those sign on bonuses, is that, um, is that effective? I mean, is that, would, would you say that's an effective tool to, uh, to get employees or, um, 
is it not worth my time to do? I have found that they're not extremely effective. I would say that the most important thing is when you're advertising, advertise things like flexibility. Now, let's just say you do, you, your, your employees can't work remotely. Flexibility can be a lot of different things. Flexibility in the number of days they work, the, the number of days they work, the hours they work. So you can advertise flexibility and somebody who is a student, for example, or a single mom will say, oh, they're going to, they can be flexible. Maybe I can talk to them about working during the hours where my kids are in school. Or maybe I can uh, talk about a part-time schedule. So I think we have to be flexible on how we, before, let's just say you wanted only full-time committed employees who could work long hours. Now we have to be a little bit more flexible and you just are going to have to compartmentalize to, to figure out how to meet your needs at the same time of meeting the employee's needs. So I'd say flexibility is a big one. Um, I have heard a lot from candidates when they see that word, that attracts them. Sign-on bonus never hurts anyone, um, but it hasn't been as effective as I've um, seen before. Okay. Does anybody else have questions here? Because uh, this is a fascinating subject, and it's certainly something that uh, if you've got employees and you've been able to retain them and, and uh, you don't think you're expanding, uh, great. But uh, I know for myself and many people around me, this is a problem. It's a real problem trying to find somebody to capture them and bring them in and, and make them feel at home and, and uh, get what we would need out of them. So, um, yeah. Do we have any questions? Dan? Yeah, thank you. I think you know, your, your point about um, flexibility is so key here in, the, in our whole discussion. And uh, one example, if I can think of that um, with the um, the modified um, work schedules that people have uh, suddenly become accustomed to in some of the manu- large corporate manufacturing plants where they have to have, you know, whether it's an automobile manufacturer or meat processor, they have to have people on the assembly line eight hours, 24 hours a day, whatever, eight hours a shift. And uh, so that created a little animosity between the people on the manufacturing side versus the management office staff. The management office staff had flexibility of, you know, coming in at 10 and working till 6 or coming coming in at uh, 8 and working till 11 and coming back in at 2 and work to 5, you know, to meet their um, um, daycare needs. And so to minimize this animosity, which is, could be a boon to our type of business, our vending and food service business, some of these large corporate manufacturers have adopted a plan where, okay, um, and, you know, if we have a cafeteria, we'll instruct our cafeteria uh, to have meals to go, where the employees that have to be there eight hours a day can grab a meal or meals to take home uh, to their family so they're not to cook. And they have to, they offer incentives to those that are, um, you know, captive audience in, in the factory setting. And uh, it's a boon to us. And so I think the flexibility is showing through uh, even in the large corporate world, and I think we all need to take example of that. And, um, you know, because you know, many of us have cafeterias where we have to have staff during certain hours. And so and that could be an option that we could offer. Okay, have your employee have uh, meals at a discount that they can take home or certain items they could take home or, or even uh, daily health and beauty aids uh, have them available for them so they don't have to make an extra stop on the way home. 
Uh, and so flexibility is really getting to be key. And, you know, the more ideas we can have on flexibility, you know, part-time is the obvious, you know, but um, offering extra incentives to those, I think, is uh, kind of out-of-the-box out of thinking, and it's a boon to our uh, segment of the food service industry. I think that those, that's a great suggestion. I mean, if, if I had, you know, if you're going to the office and you can walk out with dinner and not have to worry about that, I think that is great. Um, and I echo what you said about we have to think out of the box and we have to think about flexibility means a lot of things. Um, it can mean, you know, a variety of things, just as you mentioned, offering uh, the food to go, um, you know, maybe having making um, connection with a dry cleaning service or a laundry service to come and pick up their laundry and drop off their laundry. There are multiple things that can be done that that won't cost a lot of money. Some will cost money, but, you know, connecting with the with the dry cleaner or laundry service, they'll be happy that they're getting the additional um, business and your employees will be happy. Then they don't have to worry about laundry. So now they may pay or you pay a portion. So there are a ton of different ways, and we have to definitely think about how we do that. So I definitely appreciate that comment because it is true. And and that is understanding your employees' needs. So talking to them, hearing from them, what would make life easier for you as you come to work? Because we're so appreciative of you being here, but what can we do um, to make life easier for you? And and in, there are things that, you know, they may um, tell you. Anything like I heard from a company, I just want five. They were having 10-minute breaks. I just want five more minutes and a break. Great. company was able to do the 15-minute break. Um, and so there are just so many things that can be done without a huge cost. Have you had very many uh, uh, people ask to have like shared time instead of working eight hours, work four hours, and they have a friend that will work the other four hours? Shared time is a, is definitely something that has not been utilize as much as it should, but uh, no, we haven't seen it, but definitely for the education sector, they were using it. And I think that um, I haven't seen too many employers use it, but again, another fabulous idea of what um, em- employers could do. Great. Uh, do we have any other questions for our guest? You have no other hands raised. Well, I will say, I I um, think, you know, as as we read, a ton of articles of what's happening and trying to find out why employees um, are either leaving the workplace or not joining the workplace. Um, I'm going to reiterate just it's not all about money. Money is definitely consideration and employers are, are doing what they can to lure them in with money. But what I am finding a lot, especially in the younger groups is, is their flexibility. So I encourage you to, See what is applicable to your business that you can do. Um, just like the other gentleman suggested about the, the food, the sharing hours as artists suggested, there are a multiple you know, different different avenues. You know, contributing to their Wi-Fi, they're working remotely. Um, just a, a, a numerous um, things helping them out with services that that we talked about, like the laundry. Um, and doing again, I highly encourage everybody to talk to their either but through survey or through roundtables, talk to their employees and find out what's important to them. 
Well, I'm I'm going to ask you a really hard question here. <laughs> I apologize, but it, it is a hard one. Uh, in your crystal ball, how long do you see this uh, employee crunch going on for? Is this something we're going to be facing for the next six months, the next five years? Any idea what we might be looking at? Um, I think summertime. I think we're going to go through all through summer and, and possibly through fall because uh, for those that are concerned about um, COVID, I'm hoping that, you know, things will be more stable. And so I, I based on what we're seeing with the numbers, uh, I, I think summer to fall, it'll get a little better. But I also think employers by that time would have learned um, a lot about what employees want and will get better at attracting and retaining them. But that's that's all I can see in my crystal ball. <laughs> well, that was that was more than I thought you could answer. So that's good. That's good. Do we have Dan on again uh, for another question? Yeah, uh, Melina. Um, you know, um, on-site daycare has been around for decades, and um, there's been a recent push by our legislative leaders in Washington to expand upon um, on-site daycare. As we all know, daycare is a is a big concern because um, people daycares are are short staffed and hard to get staff and some are shutting down. Um, and uh, we've got some of our blind managers around the country that have started offering this if they have a family member that's capable of doing daycare and they can have a driver. Or can they, what, what do you see a great value or is that a, is that a cost effective uh, benefit to offer some on-site daycare uh, for an employee? As a mother of three, I tell you, uh, when they were young, that would definitely would have been beneficial. It is expensive for some companies to offer on-site daycare. However, um, what I know that many businesses have done is is partner with somebody and offer the space and and help contribute to the daycare. So absolutely, I think it's a great idea. I think. Um, with schools not being in session, that was really difficult for a lot of employees. And so, but now that schools are, many schools are open, most schools are open. I think that um, that is definitely an idea. Also, pickup, like after school care would be great if, you know, there was, if the company is large enough to, to partner with, a, an, again, there's, and I say partner because there's a lot of you don't have to rethink everything like, oh, now I'm in the childcare business. You don't have to, you don't have to, um, open your own childcare, but you can partner with somebody where you can offer the space or you can offer to contribute to the childcare. So, and offer to, to partner with a pickup service who can bring the kids to an after school care system on your site. So there are different, um, options. For that, I definitely think that um, that daycare is a big thing. FSA, you know, when we talk about benefits, flexible spending accounts. The, so if you don't have them, it's great to have the dependent care accounts because you can save tax-free uh, dollars on dependent care. So um, that's another option, too, and it's not costly to the company, but it's very beneficial to the employees. Thank you. I guess I, I never thought about the aspect of partnering with another small business. That would be uh, much easier to do than trying to provide your own daycare service for your employees. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Any any other questions? You have no hands. 
I think the when you were talking about other benefits too, I mean sick leave and holidays and so forth. And I know some businesses don't offer very many holidays. They probably could expand the number of holidays or or offer um, more sick leave too. That might be a benefit that isn't super costly, um, unless of course you have someone that uses the hours up as quickly as they can. <laughs> I agree with you, artists. Sometimes one giving the employees one day, like the day after Thanksgiving or or somewhere mid whatever's relevant to the business that you can, or maybe an alternating day would be great because um, sometimes people just need a little break. And again, the cost of turnover is pretty high. We all know, think about your most precious employee, your hardworking employee that knows the business inside and out. And if they were to leave, that would leave you in a tough spot to have to hire and retrain somebody. So it may be worth one holiday, an extra day off, an extra hour, some hours off so that um, you continue to keep your employees engaged and happy while they're there. So as I had mentioned today, you can offer different things, floating holiday. Some people offer it's your birthday day off or um, the floating holiday I like because then people can take it when they feel that they need that day. One other thought I had um, is what I uh, have done many times is, um, in a, is for a very selfish personal reason, but I'd um, pick my um, employees. Uh, we have a sagebrush training conference in Las Vegas every year. I would pay their way to the sagebrush because it is a legitimate business expense. Because all we basically have a meeting out there, a the group of us, and I could c- cover their expense to Las Vegas, and uh, and they really appreciate that. That went over so well. We just uh, registered into our Sagebrush training conference. And but my personal selfish reason out of it was that um, for most of my employees, I was the only blind vision impaired person they ever worked with or even met. This way, by bringing it to Sagebrush or bringing it to the ACB uh, annual conference, it um, gave them a greater exposure to other blindness and vision impaired people, and they could monitor how they, um, their orientation mobility skills, and they could come back and they could educate me on what they seen Jane do, what they seen John do, what this Jim do, what Donna did, you know, and how they do that and how they function. And then they, you know, uh, uh, they gave up their sympathy for me, and they gained more apathy that, hey, yeah, just because you're blind doesn't mean I have to babysit you or you can, you're capable of doing anything. That was my very selfish personal reason, but the employees just got such a big kick out of, um, and that many, several of them told me that's the only reason they stay working for me is because I take them to Las Vegas every year. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a good event to go to. But one thing that you mentioned um, was – you know, aside from the trip, which is great, also professional development, you know, people want to continue growing. So any, any training that you can pay for, so it, you know, which includes the the cost sometimes of the trip, the cost of the hotel meals, and the training, you know, shows the employees that you're really investing in them and that you want their, you care about their growth. And so professional development is always a good tool to use um, it does not have to mean that you have to send them somewhere, but they could, you know, even just paying for them to attend a Zoom webinar 
is enough to make, and you tell them it's because I want to continue to grow and develop you so that you can continue to move in the company, I think is, goes a long way as well. So investing in the employees. That, that's exactly what I wrote off on my taxes as on, uh, you know, development training. And, and it really paid off because they would see things that I couldn't see and they could report that back to me and they would improve their attitude. So it, it was just a win-win all the way around by, um, you know, you say personnel development and that's really what it got down to. I mean, I had a lot of personal selfish reasons for it, but I had a lot of employee um, thoughts behind it, but it just, it's just such a win-win by keeping them involved and letting them take ownership of their ideas. Absolutely. Well for me. Yeah, it sounds great. And then you, what you just said about, you know, keeping them involved in their ideas is another option is how to, how do you capture their ideas? Do you have a suggestion box? Do you have a, um, a time frame when you meet with them and you say, okay, this is a time when we're going to, we have this problem. We're going to look into to you for your ideas, a, a contest, you know, of, of the next new product. So again, many different ways. It does not have to be just money, but I do reiterate that you should really know what, what what's keeping your employees engaged by either asking them, having a round table, doing a survey. And also what is the market outside doing? Um, you know, what are they paying? What are they offering? And I think acknowledging their, their input, because what, that's what we did for our, our Christmas dinner for our employees. We took them out to a Christmas dinner. And then, you know, we would acknowledge and recognize each of their suggestions that we implemented into our business over the past year. And it, it just, um, you know, it went so far, they, they, you could, my wife would say they could see their eyes light up when their name was mentioned that they had this idea and we fought, and it improved their business because of their, and it, but yeah, it was a little stressful sometimes. Sometimes you had to reach, you know, think quite hard on uh, how valuable was their idea to us and maybe had to embellish it a little bit or whatever, but it, it, it surely paid off this way. Uh, giving me recognition at our Christmas dinner. Well, can I can I uh, tag on to that a little bit and say for the employees I've had over the years, if you can make them feel like they're part of something, their uh, their ideas are now your ideas, and it, it's made the whole company better. Man, that's one of the best gifts you can give out to somebody, and and they buy into that. It's so important that they feel they're a part of a community, a group, a family. I'll even use that word. Um, th- that's just a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Also a Christmas bonus, you know, if you take them out for dinner for Christmas, give them a Christmas bonus. Yeah, it doesn't right. even have yeah, to be yeah. a lot, yeah, you know, 25 bucks. Right. And they they really appreciate those. Yeah, you give them that $100 bill, green green bill, and that you know, lights them up too. You know? <laughs> that, uh, it, there's so many things that it, it, it takes time away from your business, but yet it's part of your business. You, you can't just say it's cost me time. No, it's not. It's um, you're just it's employee development is what it is. Is keeping yep. them involved in the ownership of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we will bring this session to a close. This has been a fascinating topic. Uh, this is hopefully a lot of help to a lot of folks because I know for myself, 
it's made me think on some of my practices I'm looking at for um, hiring folks. I, I know I need to probably expand my number of folks I have working for me, and I, I need some some uh, quivers in my pack to figure out where to attack and how to find that uh, person that I really need to help grow my business. So we thank you for your presentation today, and uh, it's been fascinating, and we, we thank all of our uh, folks in the audience for coming in. Well, today. don't forget door prizes. And we have door prizes. I almost <laughs> forgot. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Almost forgot. <laughs> okay. Well, I have a few here because I was going to do a couple earlier, but then we had a little uh, glitch earlier, so I put them to the yeah. end instead. So I'll read off the names. And again, you'll be getting a gift certificate in email. The first one is Sean Beaver. Second one is uh, William or Bill Cox. Then we have Guillermo Alvarez or Alvarez. And we have Corey Markham. Wow. All right. Well, congratulations to the four of you. And uh, artists, you'll be sending that out in an email, correct? That's right. I'll get it within the next few days. Oh, fantastic. So be looking in your emails. Congratulations. Uh, That's very cool. So we will be looking forward to seeing you folks tomorrow. Uh, we've got a lot of g- ground to cover in a short period of time tomorrow. So we'll be looking for you and uh, we'll have some great guests and we'll be sharing some great information. So thank you all for joining us today and we'll be looking forward to seeing you tomorrow.